Good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Moore, uh, the, the pastor, one of the pastors on staff, the assistant pastor on staff. And uh, it's my delight, as always, when I get the opportunity to, to be here and to, um, to be here. I'm always here to preach God's Word to you this morning. So we're going to be uh, continuing along in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're in chapter 11. And if you uh, brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to chapter 11. If you didn't, uh, there's a blue pew Bible there. You can open it up to page 969. Before we, we read, I'm, I'm not going to be looking at the entire chapter there of 11, but just verses 1 to 6. And before we read that, um, just let me remind everybody what we've been doing in the book of Second Corinthians. We've been looking at this book for um, 12, 13 weeks now. And we're coming to its end. And one of the, the themes we've had with this book is how the cross of Christ shapes our crisis. And so we've been looking at how Paul teaches about that and how Paul uh, brings this message of death uh, into, or message of weakness would be another way to put it, into the lives of the Corinthians who are going through all sorts of things. And so this morning, specifically, one of the things we haven't talked about is, is the crisis of deception, uh, the crisis of deception in our own lives, uh, particularly, and how all of us, through many, many, many ways, are deceived and led astray away from the truth of the gospel. And so, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word found in Second Corinthians chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 1, and again, we're just going to go to verse 6 here. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed... Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we can thank you for this morning, and we pray that with our time left that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not see, uh, or that your word would plant in, in our hearts, and that we would settle in good soil, and that it would turn a fruit, and that we would leave here changed people. We ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, back in April, if you subscribe to Time Magazine, maybe you don't, uh, they ran a cover on Are Becoming Porn. Why young men who grew up with internet porn are becoming advocates of turning it off. Interesting enough, the same week that this magazine was hitting the shelves, five uh, people from Fort Worth Press and Trinity, myself included, we're in Greensboro, North Carolina, to attend a summit, a conference of sorts, about the effects of pornography, specifically internet pornography in our culture today. And what both the summit that we were at and then Time Magazine itself confirmed is that the consumption of pornography is at an unprecedented limit and rate in our culture today. 
mainly because of its accessibility with things like this, um, but also the isolation that we have now because of things like this. Many neurologists who do studies on the brain uh, on the effects of heroin, cocaine, are now labeling pornography as the new drug because of the the reaction that your brain has to it with the level of dopamine uh, that rises when people binge on it, um, which is now possible because of our technology. But how much porn are we watching today? I know this is the question you all were asking when you came here this morning. I, 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 want to, I want to give you some statistics. According to this Time Magazine article, and of course, for us, it was backed up by so many other studies and researches that we discovered. One independent web tracking company clocked 58 million monthly U.S. visitors to adult sites in February 2006. That's about a sixth of the U.S. population. Ten years later... The numbers have almost doubled to 107 million visitors per month. It's about a third of the U.S. population. Time Magazine quotes that one particular adult website, which it names I won't, gets 2.4 million viewers around the globe per hour. And that in 2015 alone, I, I, I can't get my arms around this, 2015 alone, People around the globe watched 4.3 billion hours of its content. Which the article concludes is more than twice as long as Homo sapiens have spent on the earth. I did a little bit of math. That's 490,000 years of content in the year 2015. The article continues, the internet is like a 24-hour all-you-can-eat buffet restaurant that serves every type of sex snack, and the young are devouring it. In a study in Britain, 40% of British boys ages 14 to 17 said they regularly watch, and regularly is the key word there, according to a February 2015 study at the University of Bristol. When I was a sophomore in college, internet was just getting, high-speed internet was just entering the dorms. This is in 1999. And, um, you know, well... This was the first year it was happened, and, and I never walked into uh, one particular friend's room, but it was not just the only one, where two things weren't happening in this room with a computer that had high-speed internet. One was downloading free music via a website called Napster, which some of us who are in the 30s understand what that is. The other was downloading pornography. It was just what people were doing because they could. Now, I'm very open about this topic because, one, I'm no stranger to the effects that it has on men and women. In our culture. And I absolutely do not want to stand here as somebody who presents themselves as someone who somehow avoided the grip of pornography in their lives. That's not my story. It's not my story at all. This is not a those out there kind of conversation that we're having right now. This is very much a we conversation here. I believe that this issue, more than where we're going to the bathroom these days, is a defining issue in our culture, in our marriages, and absolutely in the church today. At the summit in Greensboro, North Carolina, we heard over and over how my generation didn't really know what having access to this much pornography would do to us. It's, some, it, <clears throat> it's like someone turned on a hose connected to a fire hydrant and said, just drink, but we had no idea what it is that we were drinking of. Yes, we knew it was bad. 
but we didn't know how bad it was. And we are just now getting to the place where we have enough record to begin to see the effects that it's having on human beings. And I say this to say that I cringe, and I want you to cringe too for our youth today. Because I have no idea how I would handle having one of these in my pocket at age 8 or 9 or 10. We don't know what this will do to our children. We will only be able to find that out in the next 10 or 15 years. But to say that it's an all-you-can-eat buffet is an understatement. And in many ways, it almost seems hopeless. And I think there are many people in here this morning that understand what I mean when I say that it seems hopeless. After seven years of ministry on the college campus, I can count in one hand the number of guys who said that pornography was not an issue in their lives. And then two of those people recanted by the time they graduated. The question, when the, when the question changed from, <clears throat> do you look at pornography, to how much are you looking at, I knew something had changed. It was the defining issue for our men on campus. And, and, and the closer that I got to leaving the campus, it was becoming more of an issue for women as well. This is not just a men's issue. Now look, why are we talking about this? Especially the week after Mother's Day. Two reasons. One, the church has got to start talking about this. We have to start talking about this and realizing that it's not a problem for other people. It's a problem for the church. All credible studies today show that 60 to 70 percent of men in the church view pornography 50 to 58 percent of pastors, and I think this is low, view pornography. 20 to 30 percent of women in evangelical churches reported viewing pornography. That's the church. That's our neighborhood. It's on our street. So we, we have to talk about it. And we have to know, more importantly, how to talk about it. But the second reason we're talking about this is I think it helps us with our text this morning. No, Paul is not talking about pornography. I'm not trying to do some type of ex, you know, exegesis here, some karate, if you will. Um, but what he is talking about is deception. And he's talking about how the Corinthians are continuing to be led astray by a false gospel. And if there was ever, 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 ever a more false gospel that was entering our homes and entering our churches and entering the minds of individuals today... It is without a doubt the false gospel of pornography. Now, I recognize that the issue of pornography isn't everybody's issue. I'm well aware of that. But if it's not yours, it's, it's, someone, it's someone's close to you. And for that reason, we need to give it our attention. But all of us, in one way or another, are deceived by something in this world that promises something. Something that comes to us and says, you can have this or you can be this. And we go after it. And if it's something that is either uh, void of Jesus or if it's something that, that is counter who he says that he is, it is a false gospel. And this is exactly what Paul's fears are. In chapter 11, as we come to it in Second Corinthians, someone has come, in, come to them and has offered a message of hope, offered a message of joy, Offered a message of pleasure even, but in the end, it is nothing but a complete lie. And many of the Corinthians have bought this lie. And so the church is in a desperate situation. Interesting enough how the letter flows. 
Paul was sort of beginning to talk about this at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. Then he goes on a different tangent, and he kind of comes back to it in the middle of chapter 10, and he'll continue on through 11 and 12. But because this is the state of the church, Paul is desperate to get in there and to begin addressing it. And so the question I have for the text this morning is the same one I have for us. What could possibly change our minds? What could change the mind of a third of this country who, statistically speaking, is looking at pornography at a regular rate? What has the ability to draw us back, if you will, from what our hearts have wandered off to get? What or where is the hope? And to get at that, you see on your handout, I want to look at three things here. I want to look at Paul's divine jealousy I want to look at the art of seduction, and then I want to look at the way home. So let's begin with Paul's divine jealousy here. Paul begins in chapter 11, which is also called this fool's speech. We won't spend much time on that, but with a confession of jealousy over the Corinthians. And why? Because he says that he has betrothed them to Christ. Well, what in the world is that? In the Jewish culture of marriage, you didn't date like we do today. You didn't go get, you know, get coffee or get called up on a date and maybe go out and hang out for a little bit, hang out. Um, you didn't do that. That's not how, how it worked. Um, instead, marriages were often arranged. And most of us have seen Fiddler on the Roof by now. We, all, we know how this works. And they were arranged. And, uh, but, but to be arranged is to be promised to somebody is to be betrothed to them. But you didn't, that didn't mean you got married to them right away. Sometimes the marriage didn't happen for years to come. And so there was this process between the promising of somebody or being betrothed to them and the actual consummation of the marriage. And so what's important here is that in chapter 11, what we begin to see is that the betrothed, the bride here, is the Corinthian people. And if you're looking for somebody to identify with this morning, it would be them. And who they're promised to is Jesus. He's the groom. What Paul then sees himself as, as, is as the father of the bride, so to speak. He is the one who has set this whole thing up as their apostle who has come in and shared with them the gospel, has led them to Jesus. He is, in a sense, their father who has betrothed them to this Jesus, who will at one point in time come and take his people to be with him forever. This is how the metaphor of betrothing works, except in verse 2 we find out that the father of the bride, Paul, is jealous. And he's jealous because his daughter, as it were, was, was or has wandered off. She has been deceived and has, has gone astray after another who seems to be promising something new, promising something better, promising something different. Something, though, that will ultimately bring happiness, of course, joy, and satisfaction, but it doesn't. Sound familiar? This jealousy, however, isn't the petty relational jealousy we might experience in a high school romance. This, this word here for jealousy means to burn with zeal. The same type of zeal we would hear about in the Old Testament when God would command Israel to not worship other gods because of his zeal or his jealousy for them. And this is Paul's point to them here at the beginning that, that, that for the Corinthians to be led astray is to actually grow further and further away from the loving arms of a God who has faithfully committed himself to them. It's to actually move further away from what they're actually looking for in the first place. And it burns him up inside. 
It's as if Paul has been shouting, not just here in chapter 11, but throughout the whole letter, do you know how much the groom loves you? Because if you did, you would wander no more. But that's the challenge, isn't it, for us? To believe that someone is jealous over me, let alone that that one is truly God himself. Yeah, Paul, if I did believe that, I probably wouldn't wander so much, would I? And this is how marred the creation has become because of sin. And it's the challenge for me, and I imagine that it is for you, that God is not only jealous over you, but that he wants to be with you. That he chooses to be with us, that he notices us, and that in him all of our heart's longings really do, in fact, find their home. Why is the human race spending 4.3 billion hours in 2015 looking at internet pornography? And it's not because we are anti-God. It's because we are looking for God. It's because we are looking for someone who would burn with zeal over us. We are looking for someone who thinks we're awesome all the time. And we think we found it here in our phones, in our iPads, in our computers. But we are so, so wrong and so led astray. This whole letter to the Corinthians has been Paul holding up the picture of Jesus on the cross for you, saying, look, this is love. This is what it looks like for someone to burn with zeal for you. This is what it looks like for someone to think that you're awesome all the time. But we just don't see it. We walk away. It's, it's as if we doubt it. It's as if we see the cross. But somewhere, somewhere in the back of our mind, somebody's whispering, it's not true. It's not true. And so we doubt and we walk away. <clears throat> but the search continues, doesn't it? And see, this is, the, this is the pitfall of internet pornography. Where are the limits, right? It's, it's nothing more than a bottomless pit of hopeless possibilities for real intimacy and for real truth. And it's all just one click away. We heard testimonies from people that weekend of, of women trapped in this addiction, spending 12 to 13 to 14 hours a day just sitting at the computer viewing internet pornography. And I say that because there, there's a generation gap here with this. Some people just heard something new for the first time. Sorry. Some people have heard something very familiar. And we've got to bring that here. Uh, We need to get on the same page. For Paul, throughout this whole letter, he's been asking, what would happen if we began to believe that that the God of this world, of this universe, who speaks everything into existence, what would begin to happen if we began to believe that he thinks that you matter, that I matter? That he thinks that you're brilliant. That he thinks that you're hilarious. One thing is for sure, we'd be a people less vulnerable to deception, less open to being led astray, looking for places, in places for something that only exists in the pierced hands of Jesus. But the question remains, why is Jesus not enough for us? Why does this doubt exist? And, and this gets to my second point, the art of seduction, which is a little bit more... A little bit longer than the others, so bear with me. But, you know, if God's zeal for us, if this, this jealousy here that Paul has given us a picture of is everything we're looking for, then why don't we walk away? 
Why are we, why do, why are we led astray? If you notice there in verse 3, Paul makes this interesting connection between what is going on with the church in Corinth and what is going on in the garden of Eden with the serpent. He says, but I'm afraid, this is verse 3, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what seduced Eve is the same thing that is seducing the Corinthians and is the same thing that is seducing millions of people hooked or viewing any type of internet pornography each day. It's words. It's not pictures. It's words. The fruit in and of itself for Eve would never have caused her, would never have caused her to take it. It was always the words behind the fruit that Satan was whispering to her that seduced her. And this is the art of seduction. It's always the ability to cast doubt on what's really true. Or to put it in another way, it's making a lie beautiful. And like any false gospel, it never, ever delivers. The Time article reveals this by the end as one man by the name of Gabe Dean, 28, from Irving, Texas, who is the founder of a company called Reboot Nation, a website aimed at getting men sober from internet pornography, says, I would tell my son, and these aren't Christians, by the way, just FYI. I think it makes it more interesting that way. I would tell my son, I'll I'll be straight, straight up with you, all the super stimulating things like internet porn, junk food, and drugs can be fun and pleasurable temporarily. However, they also have the potential to desensitize you to normal natural things, and ultimately rob you of the one thing, here's the key word, you thought they would give you. The ability to experience pleasure. Another man mentioned in the article who is starting his 30-day challenge to be free of this concludes, when I think about it, I've wasted years of my life looking for a computer or a mobile phone to provide something it is not capable of providing. In other words, what both of these men are saying, what the secular world is confirming, what the church has known, of course, is that at the end of the day, no matter how many times you go back to it, at the end of the day, it is a lie. Let me take it a little further and say that pornography is not about pleasure. Sorry if this is getting a little too close to home for some people. It is about words. It is about believing that you are somebody that you're not. It's about a world that's created where people say, come in here and we will let you be like God. And it's interesting that in the garden, (laughs) the serpent got Eve to think differently about what was really true with those same words. Eve was able to think, the serpent got Eve to think that God wasn't really truly good. He he didn't say that, did he really? He, He didn't say that if you ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you would surely died. No, 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 no. That's not true. That's not true. See, he's keeping something from you. This was the serpent's whole ploy. And this began to convince Eve, and just like that, doubt was cast upon what was really true. That God is good and that he loves his people and that he's all that we need. And what happens in the garden is that the serpent seduces Eve with these words, this is who you could be. That you can be like God. And the Corinthians are being wooed here too. Paul has to defend himself here in verses 5 and 6, saying, look, indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles coming in with their beautiful, elegant words, their rhetoric, their wealth even. 
noting that Paul, you know, looks a little beat up himself. He's been the president, even tells us. Those aren't things to, 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 to build a ministry upon. There's beauty here. There's attraction. It glitters. There's something drawing in the Corinthian people, but it's not true. It's another Jesus. It's another spirit. It's a different gospel, Paul says. It's taking a lie, and it's making it beautiful. And what glitters isn't always gold. But since the fall, our hearts, and you all know this, have had such a hard time distinguishing between what glitters and what is really gold. Which is why we are so easily led astray. And nothing, nothing is doing this better today than internet pornography. It creates a world that says, come in here where everybody thinks that you're awesome. Come in here and be here. You can be God here. But in the end, after the fruit is taken, our eyes are open as they were for Adam and Eve. And all we begin to do is realize that it's a lie. But this is where this gets weirder. Notice what happens in the, to us, though, and even in the garden here in a second. You'd think that once Adam and Eve discovered that, that the serpent was lying, you'd think that they would, oh, that's not true. I'll go to God. But that's not what happens, is it? It's astonishing how quickly for Adam and Eve, once they take of this fruit and they realize that they have been, they've had the wool pulled over their eyes. That they don't go to what's true. What do they do? They hide. Shame overwhelms them. And they become a fragment of the human beings that they were created to be. That's because all lies made beautiful do this to us. They bring shame into our lives and they force us into hiding. And as I've belabored, nothing is doing this on the scale or the level today in our churches, in our schools, throughout the world, the internet pornography. It is the source of shame for men and women today. More than anything else. And nothing, nothing sends us into hiding like this. I mean, to put it bluntly, who wants to get up here and talk about their porn addiction. Nobody. You, you don't even want me to say that word again. <laughs> like we don't want to hear about it. That's hiding. And the two ingredients you need to go deeper into deeper in this addiction are shame and isolation. And we're wondering how 4.3 billion hours can be consumed in one year. That's how. That's how. Do you find it odd that an industry that doesn't spend a dime on advertising grosses $13 billion a year? That should make you so mad. Yet, no one I know is looking at it. <laughs> really? It's because we're hiding and, it, and it's, it's time to come into the light. It's time for the church to be a place where people can come into the light about this. To be a hospital spiritually for people. As Adam and Eve felt shame and hid themselves, they became fragments of how God made them. Because sin, by definition, is dehumanizing. And what dehumanizes is more than any other drug in this world. And it's at this point that I can't talk about what the article talked about because it would be too graphic for a sermon. Some of us think we might have even already reached that point. 
But the level of dehumanization that this issue is causing people should cause the church to weep. To weep. What's drawing us in here, what's seducing us is not pictures. Please, please, please get that. It's words. It's the promise to be like God. It's doubting his goodness. It's making a lie beautiful. Just like the garden. Just like any false gospel. So what do we do? We have to de-beautify the lie. And the way we do that is by consuming what is true. And this gets to the last point, the way home. <clears throat> the way home for the Corinthians and for us is for something to come in and to de-beautify the lie for us. And for Paul, this is what the cross ultimately does for us, how it shapes our crisis. That is, the only thing that does that is truth itself. And what looks True, or excuse me, what truth looks like is always going to be Jesus for us. He's the hero here, and let's put him there. But what the cross shows us this morning is that there always has been one who you were betrothed to. There's always been one that you were betrothed to coming after us and remaining faithful to us in our most unfaithful moments. When we were going astray, the cross shows us that there always has been one who truly burned with zeal for us. The cross shows us that there always has been one who thinks you're awesome all the time. And this is the way home. To turn our eyes to what's really true. Jesus, friends, will debeautify the lie with his beauty. Richard Lovelace puts it this way, if the fall occurred through the embracing of lies, the recovery process of salvation then must center on faith and truth. Reversing this condition. See, what we need in the midst of our deception is something more beautiful than what our hearts have gone after. And the only thing that is more beautiful is truth itself. There was a French fairy tale published in 1740, and the story was so beautiful that two years later it was written as a play called Amour pour Amour, or Love for Love. Throughout the centuries, this story was reproduced and reproduced and reproduced, and we might become or might be more familiar with the 1991 Disney version called Beauty and the Beast. But G.K. Chesterton had this to say about this story. He said, there is... A great lesson in beauty and the beast that a thing must be loved before it is lovely. That a thing must be loved before it is lovely. It's that beautiful message that captured the hearts of millions and millions of people over the years since the fairy tale was first published. And what makes it such a powerful story even today. But here's my point. I don't think we love this story. I don't think the humans are drawn to this story because it's beautiful, because it makes us feel all warm inside. I don't think my, my daughters love this story because they want to be Belle. I think there's a part of it, part of them, that loves this story because it's true. Because it's true that there's someone out there that has truly loved us in our most unlovely moments. And because that's true... It has the power to debutify any lie that we would go after. 
We see this beauty immediately in the garden after Adam and Eve take the fruit, don't we? That in their shame, as they hide, what happens? Does God come to them and shame them? Does he come to them and, and, and yell at them? No, what does he do? He, he comes after them. He clothes them. He wraps them up. It is, it, is, it is somebody who is loving the unlovable so that they might become lovely. But the ultimate expression of this, of course, is found in the New Testament with the crucifixion of Jesus. The lovely, for us, the unlovely, where someone burned with zeal so much that he bled himself out for us. Jesus bled out for 4.3 billion hours of watch pornography in 2015. Why? So that his beauty might swallow up the lie made to look beautiful. Jesus will debeautify the lie with his beauty, the one who died for the many. And because it's true, it's the most beautiful thing that you and I will ever see. Paul will continue trying to convince the Corinthians that there really is a place where everybody, everyone thinks you're awesome and it's called Jesus and his kingdom. And he's telling you the same thing this morning. But here's the deal. You've got to give this marriage a chance. You've got to give this marriage a chance. Jesus, the one you are betrothed to, is the place where, as the psalmist writes, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the more that you feast your eyes on him, as we will in a minute at this table, the more the lies of this world, whatever it is that is deceiving you, that you are finding more beautiful than him, the more that those lies will be debeautified, the more our hearts truly find rest. This, friends, is the way home. We've talked about a lot this morning. Um, We've opened up some issues, and I I just want to end by saying, I want you to know that your church staff wants to talk about this. And we want to talk about it with you and talk about it with your friends or, or whatever it looks like. But this is something that we want to talk about. And, and to that end, here's just one point of application for the sake of time for you and your family to discuss. And that is this. Don't believe the lie that thousands preach to themselves every day that, oh, I'll get better on my own. I sat there for years saying that to myself. The reality is, is you need a team. We all need a team. We need people in our lives to help us with this. I've had a team for 15 years. And will for the rest of my life because this isn't something to mess around with. It will destroy you. It will destroy your marriages. It will destroy the church from the inside out. Believe that. We've got to find somebody to talk to you about this. And I want to offer your pastoral staff as perhaps maybe the first place, certainly your parents, to talk about this, to begin a conversation about this. But we serve a God who comes looking for you in your hiding. Don't miss the gospel and all this. And he, friends, is not ashamed of you. And he is not divorcing or, should we say, casting you off because you are not lovely. He's here to love the unlovable in order to make them lovely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
Paul, and we thank you for the letter to the Corinthians. We pray, Lord, that as we leave here and enter the workforce tomorrow, we come into all kinds of deception. We come into so many stories and narratives who are bidding for our heart's affection. And some are more powerful than others. Some we're more drawn to. Some we seem like we're going after, and it just seems hopeless to think that we'll ever come back. And I pray that you would meet us right there. That you would meet us right there with the beauty of Jesus. And that his beauty would take away all of the other beauty that lies are wrapped up in. <clears throat> that he would receive the glory. And that we would return to him as sons and daughters, the beloved that we are. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.